As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, I was thinking, we don't really talk that much about Europe these days. <laughs> I mean, right? I guess not in relation to the, the heady days of the Eurozone debt crisis. No, we don't. But also, I feel like in this particular crisis, uh, at least from some of our episodes, you know, obviously we talk a lot in the Fed context, the U.S. context. And of course, uh, you know, I've talked plenty about Hong Kong and Asia and Asian supply chains and China and so forth. It feels like we focus a little bit less on how this current crisis is playing out uh, in the European context. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess the implication is that maybe this has been unfair in some respects because there has actually been something very, very interesting going on in Europe at the moment. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, you know, there's a good argument to be made that Europe, at least relative to the U.S., if uh, not necessarily Asian countries, has done a pretty decent job overall of suppressing the virus itself. And, you know, for years during the euro area crisis, there are always people like fiscal policy, fiscal policy. That's what's missing. You got to spend more, got to get the Germans to spend more. And, uh, you know, maybe this time it looks like they're actually doing it. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. So we had the announcement of a big uh, deal, 750 billion euros worth by the EU to fund um, a sort of long-term recovery fund for the Eurozone. And that's a big deal because, as you point out, everyone's been talking about fiscal stimulus, but it looks like uh, the Eurozone is finally going ahead and doing it. Right. And so this, of course, raises questions. And it's a theme that we've definitely had a lot on on our podcast which is, does this augur something bigger for the post-crisis period? So, of course, it's well known that you know, there's a lot of money being spent by governments all around the world, including the U.S., but the question mark is, okay, when the acute crisis phase is over, do governments just retrench, or does this become a sort of new macroeconomic stabilization model? That's a theme that we've hit uh, dozens of times, uh, but it's particularly important in the European context, I think, because People have sort of identified the lack of fiscal burden sharing as sort of a basic architectural tension or flaw within the euro system. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. How does the, I don't want to say the intrusion of fiscal stimulus, but how does the arrival of fiscal stimulus on the scene actually reshape the way that monetary policy works? And I guess we should also mention that the ECB is also in the midst of, uh, of another really important project, which is rethinking um, how it targets inflation. So we have all of this going on simultaneously, real existential questions for the role of the European Central Bank. Absolutely. Well, I'm very excited. We have a fantastic uh, guest to talk about all of this. We are going to be talking with Vitor Constancio. He is the former Vice President of the European Central Bank from 2010 through May 2018. He's now a professor at Navarra University in Madrid, uh, the perfect guest to discuss all this. So without further ado, let's bring him in. Uh, Vitor, thank you very much for joining us. So uh, are you happy to not being a policymaker in this time, or do you, uh, do you miss being at the ECB during such an extraordinary moment? 
Well, it's always difficult to get out of, you know, executive responsibilities. And I miss them, of course. I could not say that I am happy to be out for unfortunate circumstances of the COVID shock. We are again in a very important period of policy making. But fortunately, Europe has been doing well, I think, in these episodes. Uh, better than in the previous uh, episode of 2010 to uh, 2012. Just to start out with, walk us through the significance of the deal that was agreed, the 700 billion euros. You tweeted about it. Clearly, you think it's important. What's the significance? Well, uh, it establishes four precedents that are very uh, meaningful. In the first place, um, it involves a decision to issue common European debt. The Commission will issue 750 billion of debt to fund uh, this program, and that's uh, a first. The second uh, point uh, is that this is going to be distributed in the form of budget transfers and not loans to the countries. Third, it's a a big program to implement what it is a European fiscal policy stimulus to address a recessionary phase uh, in the European economy. And that's uh, also the first time that this happens at this level. And fourth, the uh, distribution of the uh, public uh, transfers which uh, uh, correspond to uh, uh, a little more than half of the 750 uh, billion is done in a way that it is not proportional to the size of each country, but uh, indeed benefits more the countries that have lower level of living and higher unemployment. So there is a convergence play. There is a solidarity uh, aspect of this that it's also uh, quite new in terms of transfers. To give you two examples, on a proportional basis, Italy would be entitled to 50 uh, billion, but they are getting 80 billion. Uh, Whereas Germany would be entitled to uh, 96 billion in proportional terms, but is getting only 27. So these four points put together constitute indeed very important uh, precedents and perhaps, and uh, we all hope so, that it will be a sign uh, of things to happen if, again, there will be a stressful situation uh, in uh, the European economy. And that's a very important uh, element for everyone, uh, the notion that uh, when there is a very a stressful social economic situation, Europe steps up and uh, takes decisions to fight the, uh, the recession and does not leave behind any of the uh, member countries. It's a big message for the future. And I think markets are really beginning to uh, uh, interiorize what this means. Uh, and uh, we see that already, but... Uh, It will take time, of course, uh, perhaps for the um, markets, particularly Anglo-Saxon markets, to uh, overcome the lingering doubts about the uh, European project. So you mentioned some really important things. For the first time, a sort of joint debt issuance is happening. Also, the fact that Germany is going to bear more of the burden or... um, the idea that their economy is more robust, there will be these transfers. But people are calling this for years, like 10 years now, people have say Germany needs to spend more, euro bonds, Germany needs to spend more, it never happens. Talk to us from your perspective, having been an ECB policymaker, about the pace that Europe operates. Why does it sort of, from the outside, it's like, oh, this took so long, 10 years, everyone knew this needed to happen. What is it about Europe that... Uh, these things tend to unfold uh, seemingly quite slowly over a long period of time. Well, you know, the uh, initial design uh, of uh, our monetary union 
was under the influence of what was the macroeconomic thinking of the time, and particularly Central European economic thinking, um, that uh, maintained that it would be enough to have monetary policy as a macro stabilization tool. And that uh, second, it would be enough for monetary policy to cater for price stability in order for the economy to uh, work smoothly and progress. A great belief in the private sector and the uh, uh, market economy. And so no one was uh, aware that facing big economic uh, shocks as the one in 2008 and 2009, more would be needed. Uh, initially, of course, uh, because there was a big pressure on the banks uh, uh, and the banks had to be uh, uh, helped by the public sector, there was uh, indeed some uh, uh, increase in deficits uh, for that purpose. But very quickly, since uh, the G20 meeting in uh, Toronto, uh, there was fiscal retrenchment. Uh, and as a result, we had in Europe uh, in 2011 and 12, we had a double dip, a second recession that no other advanced economy or region had. And that was the result of this thinking and also the fear of Central Europeans that uh, if uh, more lax uh, fiscal policy in member countries would be allowed, that uh, could result in the future to more need of assistance, and they didn't want it. So everyone was a little blocked by uh, the initial rules. And it took time uh, then even for uh, us at the ECB to be able to start QE, which uh, we did only in January. 2015, as you know, much later than other major central banks. But lessons were learned from that episode, uh, I believe, especially that the double dip, uh, the second recession, was the result of too much fiscal consolidation in all member countries at the same time. Uh, so this time, the reaction was different, which was, of course, also helped not only by lessons learned, but also by the fact that this was a symmetric shock. It was an act of nature, which was hitting all countries in the same way, and no country could be blamed for this uh, shock. So that helped also the response uh, to be uh, quite different. And uh, uh, third uh, point, uh, which I think it's also very important, we are in a, a very different geopolitical situation. And so in Europe, starting with Germany, but, but not only Germany, we are now more aware of the need of Europe uh, acting together to protect and expand its sovereignty, to be able uh, indeed to stay uh, on its own feet as uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel said uh, some time ago, and this awareness increases the sense of collective responsibility for the whole. And that also, it's a big driver uh, behind what is happening, this new awareness that uh, Europe has indeed to deepen its integration in order to survive better and prosper in a new uh, international situation where the pressures coming from Russia, from China, and uh, unfortunately now also from the US, have to be uh, considered as uh, real and serious. Mm. Since we're talking about that shift in mindset, if we, if we zoom in on Germany in particular, I'm, I'm just curious, why do you think, or what is it about either the German economy, the structure of the economy, or the German mindset that made them so resistant to fiscal spending or, you know, establishing some sort of Eurozone-wide federal-type deficit for so long? Well, it was indeed uh, their own domestic approach for, for years, uh, which it's called ordo-liberalism, uh, in the sense indeed that the uh, Central bank and monetary policy taking care of price stability would be enough because the rest of the economy would work well on its own. And 
it has worked well for, for them for uh, quite some time. But they reacted to the shock, to the crisis, to the banking crisis, very fearful of what could happen. And we saw that at the time because think, for instance, since 1969 until 2009, Germany had in its paraconstitutional law the uh, principle of the golden rule for fiscal policy, meaning basically that investment expenditure would not count for the fiscal rule. They changed it in 2009, introducing an overall debt break, as it is called, on the overall structural deficit and no uh, specific treatment of investment whatsoever. So they tightened the fiscal rule precisely at the peak of the crisis of 08 or 09 for them. And then, uh, of course, this was exported uh, three years later to the uh, European fiscal rule under their influence, uh, of course, in a softer way than the rule they have. But uh, it shows that they reacted very fearful to, to the shock at the time. Lessons were learned, I think, because they themselves last year, uh, or rather this year, had to break, in a way, uh, that rule in order to expand their own fiscal policy in response to the uh, uh, COVID uh, shock. This takes time, uh, but lessons, lessons have been learned, and we see everywhere, for many reasons, a return of uh, fiscal policy, uh, not only because of short-term uh, uh, reaction to conjunctural shocks, but also that in the, in the context of the secular stagnation phase that advanced economies are going through, uh, fiscal policy has an uh, unsubstitutable role to play. And finally, there is a recognition uh, of that, even in uh, Germany. So do you feel this is a never going back moment as in now we have established or now Europe has established this uh, fiscal policy mechanism, some precedent for burden sharing that you feel confident, at least for the time being and for years to come, this is going to be a part of the toolkit? Well, no one can predict the future, of course. These will be operational for a number of years because it will take time to implement uh, and then the economy will improve and so on. But uh, indeed, this uh, shows that there is a new awareness about the importance of keeping Europe uh, uh, really cohesive, which is even more uh, important in terms of having a monetary union. Now, the uh, big cements that we have in the European project is indeed the monetary union and the euro, uh, because it's uh, objectively, uh, I would say, practically unbreakable experience. And then uh, it means that if there are stresses, if there are shocks, they have to be coped with. This precedent shows that there is this collective sense of responsibility that I am sure will uh, happen again if uh, uh, there is a major crisis. This does not mean that, um, you know, we are going to have a fiscal union around the corner. It's not uh, the case. Uh, um, uh, it does not mean that uh, other uh, institutional reforms are going to happen uh, uh, in the visible horizon, but indeed is a game changer and the result of the new situation and of the lessons learned from the previous crisis. And that uh, will not, uh, of course, uh, go, go away. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. So we have this uh, 
new or growing recognition of the importance of fiscal stimulus, not just in Europe, of course, but in a lot of other places, um, specifically the U.S. I feel like we talk a lot about the need for fiscal stimulus, but we don't talk as much about what that fiscal stimulus should actually look like. So when it comes to the European deal, what is the best way to spend that 750 billion euros? And what kind of spending, I guess, would promote long-term economic recovery the best? Well, it it will be spent mostly on public investment by the member states. Uh, And there is already a rule, a principle in the decision uh, of the European Council that says that 30% has to be used uh, for uh, the purpose of uh, uh, greening of our economies uh, to fight uh, climate change. So it's already a chunk of uh, um, the uh, overall uh, amount that has to be uh, dedicated to investments that uh, will help uh, this fight and this objective that Europe has defined to reach a situation of being carbon neutral. Um, And so there are targets, there are milestones, there is a timetable. All that is going to be very present in the national plans that now the member states will have to develop to use this money. And then there are, of course, uh, other types of infrastructure needs in all countries that will benefit from, uh, from this plan. And in itself, it's an element of stimulating aggregate demand. So it will be uh, really uh, going mostly to uh, to uh, investment. I hope also that it will help uh, uh, some countries uh, with a lower level of living to have the resources to uh, uh, support some segments of the population that are not so well protected by the programs that already have been put in place. I'm uh, thinking about uh, gig workers, uh, uh, precarious uh, workers, uh, uh, say, uh, in performing arts and other uh, types of things that do not have uh, regular employment and were not the object of the uh, panoply of measures that were put in place uh, to help everyone uh, in these initial stages uh, of the crisis. So, uh, uh, and that, of course, also is important for stimulating aggregate demand. So it's basically the eighth anniversary, I guess we just passed it, of when uh, Mario Draghi, uh, who was the president of the ECB when you were the vice president, he had his famous whatever it takes speech, uh, establishing that the ECB would uh, theoretically, if needed, backstop government uh, debt. And we saw spreads on peripheral debt. Uh, closed very sharply, and that was sort of the beginning of the end of the uh, euro area crisis. Are we ever going to get back, in your view, to the sort of boring old central banking of how we used to think about it? It's like occasionally hike rates, occasionally cut rates. No one ever talks about balance sheets or anything like that. Or is that gone for good? And if we do have this world where fiscal plays a much more active and aggressive role, what is the future of uh, central banking even? outside of a crisis? Well, I would say that it is uh, um, normal that in certain situations of recession or in the case of a monetary union of fragmentation beyond what would be justified by the situation of fundamental values, that in those cases there is an implicit collaboration uh, between monetary policy and fiscal policy because the stance of both policies converge in those situations, like the one we had before and particularly like the one we have now because, of course, this time the uh, fiscal policy was more important to respond to this type of shock uh, in order to maintain income of people suddenly unemployed or locked down, and only fiscal policy could do that, uh, and also to help firms to survive this this period. Uh, And monetary policy took care both of normalizing financial markets, avoiding a financial crisis, and helping credit supply by uh, the banking sector. So 
the division of labor was uh, easy to define and the, the stance uh, was convergent. But let's not extrapolate that for uh, every uh, situation because the, uh, the test uh, of this sort of uh, uh, new uh, relationship that uh, people talk about, the test will come one day when inflation uh, um, may increase and then, of course, the central bank has to respond to that. And that's the uh, crunch moment when we will see how uh, these, uh, these go. But we are years uh, from uh, that challenge uh, to, to happen. And the degrees of collaboration have varied among uh, countries. Uh, uh, I would say that it's important to underline the following. Neither in the euro area or in the US there was any degree of full-fledged, properly named monetary financing. What the central banks are doing uh, uh, is not monetary financing. The Bank of England did a little bit of monetary financing by giving uh, a bridge credit to the, uh, to the Treasury. Uh, but neither the ECB or the Fed really did monetary financing. Uh, so uh, one has also to, uh, to take that into consideration. Although loosely, of course, the media are calling what the central banks are doing as monetary financing, but it is not. So, Okay. Um, I wanted to pick up on that inflation point because, as we mentioned in the intro, the ECB is currently thinking very hard about how it approaches its own inflation target, which um, I think the exact language is below but close to 2%. Do you think, I mean, there seems to be lots of confusion about why central banks around the world haven't been able to hit those inflation targets in recent years. Do you think that central bankers understand how inflation works? Yeah, good question. Uh, of course, and uh, it would be a very long answer to address uh, all Please, aspects. Please go of for it. it. But uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, the question is uh, starts uh, with the, the following thing. You know, Milton Friedman instilled in the minds of many economists and many uh, central banks at the time when he was writing that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's what he said. And by that, he meant that inflation was determined by the uh, development of monetary aggregates, M2 in the case of US, say M3 in the case uh, of Europe. Uh, and so the idea that the central banks uh, could fine-tune uh, the uh, inflation uh, rate, uh, not immediately, not, uh, you know, uh, in very short-term horizons, but, uh, you know, uh, within two, three, uh, four years, could indeed put inflation at whatever level they would wish. Well, things uh, proved to be much more complex than that, uh, because inflation depends on the overall relationship between uh, aggregate demand and supply. Uh, uh, and that is influenced by many other factors, uh, including, of course, fiscal policy, but also including external uh, shocks. That macroeconomics, particularly in the US, which uh, has dominated the field, of course, for uh, all the reasons we know, uh, tended to be thinking mostly in terms of uh, uh, closed economies, because the US being so big, uh, you know, the external sector was not so uh, important or seen as so uh, important. But uh, the point is that uh, uh, inflation depends uh, for long periods of time on many other things. Friedman himself was interviewed in the year 2000 about Japan, where there was uh, the beginning of a deflation, uh, as you know. And he answered, well, it's very simple to solve it. You just have to have the central bank buying sovereign bonds that will expand uh, uh, money and money aggregates and the problem will be solved. Well, it was not followed at the time, but some years later it was followed. Now the uh, Bank of Japan has bought uh, a little more than 100% of GDP of uh, Japanese uh, public debt and inflation has not responded. So it, it was wrong. 
clearly. And uh, we do have now, uh, uh, you know, many uh, reduced form regressions to uh, forecast inflation that take into account the uh, import prices, uh, which includes, of course, the, the exchange rate, that uh, include uh, also possibly other cost shocks that may occur, and that include expectations and inertia that uh, indeed the economic agents, both households and firms, when they decide prices, tend to have certain inertia in uh, uh, taking those decisions by uh, thinking about what has been the uh, progression of inflation in previous years. And if you put all these elements in a way to forecast inflation, you can have relatively reliable ways of forecasting inflation where the slack of the economy is also there, of the domestic it's also there. It's still meaningful, but of course, during certain periods, is overwhelmed by the effect of the other drivers of inflation. It has not disappeared. What has disappeared, and it's also in all the media, is that uh, the uh, uh, initial Phillips curve was just a relation between, uh, uh, in this case, wages and unemployment. That simple bivariate relation has indeed collapsed. Uh, and a more complex way of uh, uh, forecasting inflation, which the economists also call Philip Curves, adding to the confusion of all this discussion, the slack is still there. But it's also a factor. And as you see, monetary aggregates are not there uh, any, anymore. So it has been difficult then just by monetary policy to change inflation to the level in a period where globalization and the entry of more than 1 billion Asian workers with low wages in the world economy put a lot of pressure on declining prices of many industrial products. And that was a major shock that affected uh, the uh, overall economy of inflation in all our countries, so much that the pure domestic slack was not so much in command of uh, inflation as it was in, in the past. And that is, uh, of course, is still true. And that's why central banks uh, indeed have not the, the uh, easiness, the discretion to put inflation at whatever level they want uh, within a period of, uh, say, five years. But that is not uh, imply that monetary policy had a big contribution to avoid even a worse scenario of deflation, and that was avoided uh, in all advanced economies with the exception of uh, Japan, and uh, that uh, uh, indeed the role of the central banks uh, has been very important, sometimes, however, not helped, uh, particularly in Europe, by what fiscal policy uh, was doing. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. I want to, I want to expand, talk more about inflation and the role of central banks. And I, thinking back to, I mentioned Mario Draghi's Whatever It Takes, and part of the innovation in, his, in the logic of that speech was that sovereign government bond spreads should be considered part of uh, the ECB's mandate to narrow because the widening of them impeded monetary transmission. So even if there was some technical rule that said the ECB can't buy government debt, you could get around it by saying it fits into the monetary policy transmission. Now we're seeing a potential sort of more things falling under the uh, mandate of or the goals of the central bank, including perhaps thinking about climate and uh, inequality and other sort of 
economic concerns that in the past may not have been as strictly narrow as just keeping inflation targeted. Do you see any risk with this? Do you worry about the ECB specifically or other central banks taking on too much potentially? Well, yes, those are, say, subordinated targets to the role that the central bank uh, must perform in our economies. Uh, they are always there. Uh, uh, they are also in the treaty, uh, in the, our case, that says that uh, uh, without prejudice to price stability, then uh, monetary policy should uh, help all those other policies that you mentioned in general. Uh, and that are listed, of course, uh, in, in the treaty itself. But they are subordinated uh, goals and cannot be the dominant uh, goals because uh, it would make really no sense because, in a way, what central banks can do, for instance, in what uh, regards uh, climate change is not very much. Of course, central banks have a portfolio of securities, particularly uh, nowadays when they buy, uh, and that can become and should become uh, greener and, and certainly avoiding the more brown sort of uh, uh, securities. Uh, but if you look to the numbers uh, after that uh, effort to make the portfolios uh, greener, you uh, see immediately that the overall effect on what is at stake with climate change is uh, indeed, uh, and perhaps unfortunately, but it's indeed small. Regarding uh, uh, inequality, well, it's a mixed uh, thing because if one end it is true that uh, the purchases uh, increase the price of risky assets, which are mostly held by um, uh, high-income segments of the population, they also uh, have increased the price of housing, particularly in Europe. And housing is the uh, element of overall wealth in our economies that is bigger than financial wealth, and particularly stocks. And that stock of housing is held mostly by the middle class. And the price of those assets has increased, uh, as uh, I made a speech about that, and there are, uh, there, there are two papers published by the ECB later that also point uh, to those factors. And also, there is, of course, the effect of expansionary monetary policy on employment, on reducing unemployment, and that is a very powerful way of also of taking care of inequality. But monetary policy, by definition, cannot do everything. There are trade-offs, and so monetary policy has to have priorities, and it has priorities defined by the law. And so what it can take in from those uh, other uh, secondary uh, objectives, uh, important uh, as they are for the society at large, there are other uh, public authorities that are more responsible for that. Take, for instance, uh, climate change. It's certainly for the governments to uh, uh, step up their initiatives to take care of that uh, big uh, objective. So uh, uh, I see these as uh, indeed uh, a consideration which uh, is there and should be there, but cannot be uh, predominant. The same, for instance, regarding uh, the so-called zombie firms. Again, it's a potential problem, but it's not for monetary policy to have as a priority to think about the uh, fate of weak companies. Monetary policy uh, targets the price stability, uh, economic growth, uh, the stake in the economy, uh, and not other things. And there are trade-offs. Uh, zombie firms are more the purview of the way banks manage their credit risk by not evergreening and not uh, continuing to lend to uh, problematic firms than to uh, monetary policy particularly at this moment, also the uh, amounts of liquidity and capital in the banks uh, imply that uh, the uh, keeping some weaker firms during this period is not crowding out the possibility of banks giving credit to all the good firms that have uh, good uh, projects and intentions to, uh, to invest and to expand. So just to give you three uh, examples of some subordinated concerns 
that the central banks uh, should not ignore, but cannot become a priority. Um, I have a related question on the sort of muddling of monetary uh, policy with politics. One of the options when it comes to reviewing the ECB's inflation target is to create a flexible target, which would allow the central bank to either undershoot or overshoot inflation as needed. And I'm curious to get your views on if the ECB did adopt that kind of flexible target and the target therefore becomes discretionary, then doesn't that sort of make it a political choice to either undershoot or overshoot inflation at a particular time? And does that endanger the independence of the central bank? I think that the uh, target uh, for inflation adopted by central banks should be indeed symmetric because, as we all know, when there is a supply shock uh, to the economy uh, that uh, in some cases uh, may lead to an increase in inflation, like a big oil price increase, say, monetary policy should not respond to that uh, immediately because it cannot change that situation and it would only aggravate the recessionary effect on the domestic economy of that oil price uh, increase. That is well known, which means that uh, in those periods of supply shocks, inflation could be uh, accepted to be above target and should be accepted to be above uh, target. Uh, so it should be symmetric. Uh, and in my view, the best way to have it is... Uh, uh, what, say, the Fed has now, which is to say, well, we have this objective, one number. Uh, it's 2% in the definition of, uh, of the Fed, uh, which is not deadline inflation, as you know, but okay, it's 2%. And then it's symmetrically interpreted. It can be slightly below, it can be slightly uh, above, according to the types of shocks that the economy uh, um, suffers. And of course, it cannot be kept exactly at 2% all the time. Uh, so... Uh, some economists and central bankers argue that more explicit fle flexibility would be helpful. For instance, by adopting a well-defined range, uh, round two, and, and put the numbers of the range. I am against that because uh, that uh, creates uncertainty and uh, also opens the door to the possibility in, for instance, situations that are clearly recessionary and inflation is weak, if it is within the uh, the band, within the range, then it, uh, it would consider to be all right and the central bank would not move policy, which is wrong. So uh, I am against ranges. A way of uh, uh, also then justifying more flexibility is to go for the so-called averaging inflation targeting, that there is a number, there is a target, but it has to be attained over a number of years to allow precisely years where inflation is below and then years where it is above. Well, it's uh, enticing, but again, I also uh, do not agree uh, too much to that because it's too precise and will uh, tie the ends of uh, central banks uh, perhaps too much when, the, say, the, the six years of the averaging would, would come and what to do and then possibly fail and changing into averaging uh, inflation rates uh, inflation target uh, would not by itself move expectations of inflation. It's just not because central banks would go for this that now everyone would start to take decisions in the economy as if inflation is indeed going to increase according to the new uh, averaging uh, target. It's not going to happen that way. So I am against, but I see that it may happen in the U.S., at least, uh, you know, uh, it was very much uh, on the cards before these, uh, these crises and may come again. If it comes and if the U.S. would adopt that explicitly, that would have a big impact on other central banks. And then perhaps the ECB would have also to adopt that. But it's not something that I favor to start with. But I, uh, of course, could accept for uh, the, the reasons I mentioned. It's better to have one number and the notion that it is a symmetric target to manage uh, uh, monetary policy. Uh, I thought you said something really fascinating there about how if the U.S. were to adopt this overshoot or catch-up strategy, 
that might have an influence on other central banks. And I just love to like, as someone who's uh, you know uh, attended all these ECB meetings, starting from when you were the governor of the Bank of Portugal, so 18 years worth of meetings, how does change happen over time? Do people think new ideas, do discussions, push people into new areas, or is it about simply the composition of the ECB changing over time as people swap in, swap out roles? Talk to us a little bit more about how sort of evolution of thinking works at the ECB. Opinions move uh, starting uh, in academia, for instance, and events also uh, determine uh, change of mind uh, in people, certainly. Uh, and for instance, uh, talking about averaging uh, inflation targeting, there is one thing that is now in the mind of every central banker in advanced economies, uh, which is that after this big shock of the virus, there will be scars in our economies uh, and unemployment that will take time to uh, be reduced to uh, previous uh, levels, uh, which justifies that uh, our economies from a macroeconomic uh, policy perspective should be run as high-pressure economies, allowing a little bit of overeating in order to uh, correct quicker the uh, scars uh, in unemployment and in uh, productive capacity that will be destroyed during this period of the virus uh, crisis. And this idea of allowing that a period after this crisis of uh, uh, you know, high pressure, of uh, potentially a little bit of overeating, is well justified by adopting averaging inflation targeting, which provides then a more explicit intellectual rationale for that way of managing and accepting uh, this development uh, of, uh, uh, of inflation. And so it may happen. Uh, and that, uh, of course, then may be um, shared more widely than uh, just, uh, uh, say, in the Fed, if indeed the, the Fed moves uh, that way. But it is, in my view, uh, true, and it will happen, that uh, major central banks will allow some degree uh, of uh, uh, you know, accommodation of uh, uh, high-pressure economy and potentially a little bit uh, of uh, inflation during the immediate period following uh, this uh, COVID uh, crisis. I have a slightly weird question, but in, in the current environment, it does feel like there's a lot of outrage directed at central banks uh, for a variety of reasons. But I think one of those reasons is people feel that the central bank is uh, sort of forcing rates ever lower, eroding people's savings, possibly inflating bubbles in the stock market, things like that. Do you, what's your response to people who criticize the central bank for doing that kind of thing? And also, this is the weird question, but do central banks actually have the power to set interest rates wherever they like? Well, central banks, of course, influence very much short-term rates, uh, but all, now uh, via purchases also have a degree of effect over medium and long-term uh, rates, particularly because uh, markets uh, are afraid of central banks and uh, move in the direction of uh, um, the, those purchases. Uh, more so than uh, what the amounts that the central banks are indeed uh, buying uh, would objectively uh, objectively justify. But uh, then there is then an influence also on uh, medium, uh, medium rates. But it's not true that the central banks totally determine uh, interest rates uh, throughout the spectrum of uh, maturities because many other uh, factors enter uh, the behavior of uh, investors uh, and uh, they know that the uh, in the end the amounts that the central banks uh, could mobilize have limits in relation to the size of those markets and uh, let's uh, uh, recall that what counts for this purpose in asset markets is the total stock of the assets 
that potentially can be moved. And as James Tobin uh, always said, it's the stock that counts for the development of pricing and not just the flows of what the central banks are buying and, 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 and so on. So, uh, because at, at any moment, uh, investors can take views about the future that will move a big chunk of the stock that is there. So uh, there is no full control uh, of medium and long-term rates that are then driven by uh, other factors. But there is certainly an influence, of course, that's now become an instrument because uh, we reached short-term policy rates that are very close to zero. And then... There is this limit uh, and the need then to uh, intervene uh, more along the uh, maturity uh, spectrum. Uh, and that's uh, what uh, QE in part is doing, is doing other things, but it's also doing that. We've been talking about these sort of big picture questions about Europe, the future of central banking, et cetera. Just to bring it back to the current moment, when you look at Europe, do you feel confident that the existing uh, fiscal package and the existing uh, stance of monetary policy are appropriate to get the economy roughly back to where it was uh, pre-crisis in a decent period of time? Or do you think ultimately there will have to be yet further more uh, done uh, on the fiscal or monetary front? Well, we are all dependent on the virus uh, and on the possibility of a second wave. Uh, that would then require bigger stimulus, both uh, monetary and fiscal. But uh, forgetting that for the moment, um, I would say that perhaps next year there will be needed a little bit more of uh, uh, monetary policy. Fiscal is already very much committed and deficits will continue to be high next year. Not as high as this year, but still high. As the IMF has uh, forecasted, uh, the amazing 23.8% deficit for the US this year and uh, uh, minus 12.4 for next year. And that's before the new package being discussed uh, right now. And in Europe, uh, the deficit this year of 11% and 5.3% next year. Uh, it can be a little higher next year uh, because one thing is that governments gave a lot of guarantees to bank loans and uh, there will be um, defaults, NPLs, uh, in many loans and some of those guarantees will be activated next year and that will increase the deficits uh, next year. So the stimulus will continue, uh, the deficit will continue, there is the new package and that should be uh, indeed enough for the recovery, which nevertheless will be, in my view, uh, sluggish. I don't anticipate that uh, we will reach the same level of GDP of 2019 uh, before 2023, meaning the end of 22, perhaps, but certainly not before. Uh, and perhaps uh, even the end of 23. So uh, it's a sluggish uh, recovery because there has been a structural decrease of demand for many sectors of our economy. And the levels of demand for those sectors are not going to come back uh, anytime soon to the same levels uh, as before. And that will affect, of course, uh, uh, growth because creation of new uh, uh, productive capacity in other sectors uh, will not be as quick as to offset uh, uh, that uh, shock to the supply side of our economies, including uh, international supply chains uh, and all that. So, And also because consumers will be uh, increasing their saving rates for a number of years. It happened in 2008, after the shock of 2008. It will happen uh, this time, perhaps even more, after the experience uh, they had uh, this time. So that uh, altogether creates the conditions for a, a sluggish uh, recovery. We have to be aware of these limitations, but certainly this recovery uh, is going to happen. Uh, but it will take, uh, you know... Uh, at least a couple of years, if not uh, a little more, to come back to the levels of 2019. And uh, of course, we will never come back to what would be the trend of growth of our economies if it had continued without this big shock, the same as it happened 
with the shock of 2008. Vitor, that was uh, fantastic. Really appreciate you uh, joining us. Really, really enjoyed getting to hear from someone of your perspective. Thank you. It was a pleasure too. That was really great. Thank you. Tracy, that was a real treat getting to talk to someone who have, has been so involved with policymaking and some of the biggest issues of the economy for basically two decades. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know that saying to be a fly on the wall of, you know, yeah. the room of the ECB meeting. And he's sort of been in, well, a lot of them, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, according to our colleague uh, Lorcan, who knows the ECB better than basically anyone else I know, he never missed a meeting in 18 years so. Wow, that's quite a record. But I do think it's interesting to talk to him at this particular juncture, because, of course, as we've been discussing, it does feel like the very nature of central banking and monetary policy is beginning to change. It feels like there's there's sort of a handoff from monetary policy to fiscal stimulus. But at the same time, there's the question of how monetary policy is going to interact with that stimulus. Yeah, I think what's interesting, too, about this moment is that so obviously the COVID crisis comes along and throws everything into disarray and uh, policymakers have to scramble to new tools. But I think what's really striking is that the sort of intellectual um, groundwork for a change was in the works pre-COVID. The, you know, this idea of, OK, more uh, aggressive, consistent, um, active role for fiscal policy People have been talking about this for a while, and that's been a theme of some of our conversations. So it's kind of like the intellectual um, you know, terrain was shifting. And then we got the moment with the COVID crisis where suddenly it's like, OK, we have this has to go beyond papers and tweets and talks and to actually start thinking about how we're going to put this into practice. And so, you know, that sort of it's a moment for multiple reasons. Yeah, that's true. Although one thing that strikes me whenever we have these conversations with economists is just how much of economics is still uncertain. So, for instance, why is inflation not necessarily behaving the way a lot of people expect it to? Or uh, why is the Phillips curve flat? Uh, Where should the natural rate of interest be? Is there such a thing as the natural rate of interest? I feel like these are all really big questions that listening to Vitor, you can tell that they govern a lot of his thinking and presumably a lot of other central bankers thinking, but there are so many uncertainties swirling around them. Yeah, I was really glad that you asked that question about a sort of theory of inflation, so to speak, because it's such a profound question, because if you have all these central banks and they're like targeting, you know, the East, the U.S. is a dual mandate, but technically the ECB just has one mandate. Uh, the inflation mandate. But if you set out this mandate, okay, you have to hit this, and yet no one can really articulate what drives inflation, that just to me gets to like such a core question about like, what are what are central banks even doing if the thing they have to target, they don't know how to get there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I find inflation like as a subject just really fascinating. Also, how they measure it. Uh, I, I think a lot of yeah. people in Europe right now, especially, would argue that living costs are going up, even though inflation is still persistently right. under target. But okay, getting slightly off track. That is a topic for another odd thoughts episode. It could be a series, actually. Oh yeah, let's do an inflation series. Yes. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, okay. But just you know, like just what Vitor said about oh Milton Friedman, who is sort of the godfather of how modern economists thought about inflation for years. And he's like, oh, if Japan doesn't have inflation, file the government debt. And it didn't work. <laughs> it really sort of shows how much work there is to be uh, to be done still on this topic. Yeah, that was a good anecdote. Okay, shall we leave it there? All right, let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart, and you should follow our guest, Vitor Constancio. He's on Twitter at VMR Constancio. And follow our producer, Laura Carlson, at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.